Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, appreciate you joining us. My name is John. I am the lead pastor. Today we are wrapping up this series that we've been in that we're calling Level Up. This term Level Up originated in the video game community, hence the graphics. But it's recently gone mainstream. And, and to level up means kind of taking control of your life. Um, leveling up is about changing the way that you think. It's a shift in your mindset to become a better version of yourself. Why are we talking about level up? Well, just before Christmas, Gallup released a poll that said Americans are now reporting mental health at a new low. And it said that 31% of American adults would now rate their mental health as being excellent. Now, back in 2004, when this question was first asked, that number was 51%. That's a 20-point drop in almost 20 years. What is to blame? They say, sort of lingering COVID effects. They point to inflation and wars, all that kind of stuff. But whatever the case may be, that declining trend in mental health is concerning. And whether it's global issues, kind of national issues, or personal issues that we may have, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us are just not in a great place. And God does not want us to live that way. In fact, Jesus himself said this, I have come so they may have life. I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. I want that. You probably want that too. Now here's the thing. We got to do our part. Jesus doesn't just come and wave a magical wand and everything is great in your life. We have to do our part to grab hold of the promises of God. And so what we've been doing over this series is just taking a look at the areas in our life that we need to level up in. We're looking at behaviors and attitudes and mindsets that I think are negatively impacting our mental health. And then we're finding out what scripture has to say about being more positive or being more godly in our attitude. To recap where we've been, Adam, the guy doing the announcements in week one, talked to us about complaining because it's just what we do and it's really not helping anything. In week two, we talked about optimism and we said that Christians really can be very optimistic, that we can have an unwavering expectation that God is at work in our lives and working everything that happens to us for our good and our future good. And last week, we land on this idea of encouragement, that we need to be encouraging other people daily, we need to be encouraging other folks spiritually, and then when we are down, we have to learn how to encourage ourselves in the Lord. If any of those topics kind of jump out at you and you want to find out more about them, head to our website. It's all there. As we wrap up today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you guys about spiritual enthusiasm that excitement, that fire, that passion that we have for God and for our faith. Now, Gallup shows that over the last few years, there has been a decline in mental health. I would argue, since 2020, there's been a similar decline in spiritual health. That since those lockdowns started in March of 2020, when we couldn't go to church anymore and everything sort of went online, I have noticed that folks have sort of lost a little bit of their spiritual passion, that enthusiasm they had for God and their faith. I think their relationship with God just isn't what it used to be, right? And so if that's you and you're here today, I'm glad because today's message has been written for you. So let's start off by defining this word enthusiasm because we're going to use it a lot today. It's actually made up of three Greek words put together, en theos usia, in God essence which means enthusiasm is inspired by God's essence 
in our lives, which I think is fantastic. Enthusiasm is born out of intimacy with God, which means true spiritual intimacy isn't just a mood. It's a spiritual result of an intimate relationship with God. I was thinking this week, who kind of in my life is a great example of someone who has this kind of spiritual enthusiasm that we're talking about? And I remember that we have a phenomenal example in our own church, and her name is Betty Jo. I asked her if I could put this picture up. She said, yeah. So chances are, at some point, if you've been to DHC a while, at some point, you received a hug from Betty Jo on the way in. Betty Jo is filled with love. She does nothing but encourage. She never complains, literally never. Everything she does, she does for the Lord. But what I love most about Betty Jo is that she is filled to the brim, okay, with spiritual enthusiasm. Every Sunday, she shows up early to serve God, to serve you, and without fail, one of the first things she says is, it's going to be a yay and hooray kind of day. <laughs> now, when's the last time you said that about church? <laughs> when's the last time you said that about anything in your life? So here's the thing. Her enthusiasm, this yay and hooray kind of enthusiasm, is definitely not the result of having no problems in her life. She has problems in her life just like every single person we meet, Okay. Her enthusiasm comes from her relationship with God. She, she's constantly telling us how good God is. She's constantly reminding us about how God answers prayer. And so with enthusiasm, she seeks to love and serve God in everything she does. And so she hugs people. And she takes people to coffee during the week. And she sends folks encouraging text messages every day. It truly is a wonderful picture of how a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ can transform your life and the way that you live it and the way that you interact with the people around you. Today, what I want to do in an effort to help those of you who may have lost some of that spiritual passion you once had, I want to examine the spiritual passion and the spiritual enthusiasm of a guy named King David. I want to juxtapose, compare, side by side, if you will, two seasons of David's life. I want to show you when he had spiritual enthusiasm as a young shepherd boy. And then I want to show you when he lost that as an adult. Because many of you had it. And then life happened. And then you lost it. Now here's the good news. You, just like David, can get it back. To kick off, I want to look at one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, David and Goliath. So this story takes place in the middle of this war between Israel and, and uh, the Philistines. And in this particular account, each army has occupied opposing sides of the Valley of Elah. I've got a picture of the exact valley for you. So right, hill, right here, the Israelites were camped out. In the hill in the back, that is where the Philistines were. And the battle that's going to ensue takes place in this Valley of Elah here. Now, this was not an all-out battle. Okay, this wasn't like a scene at a Braveheart where everybody comes in the middle and just hacks each other to death. This is, that's not what this was. What this was is what's called a represent, representational battle, okay? Meaning, each side would choose one fighter to go into the middle of the valley, and they would fight mano y mano, winner takes all. Here's the problem. The Philistines chose a guy named Goliath, and Goliath was a giant, okay? And so every morning... This giant would walk out into the middle of this valley and he would yell up into the hills at the Israelites. He would say, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
Now, in hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who was the king of Israel, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days, Scripture says, morning and night, this giant would walk out into the middle of that valley and taunt them and taunt God, and they were petrified. Like, nobody wanted to fight this guy. Quite frankly, I don't blame them. He's nine feet tall, Scripture says. Now, one day... This 17-year-old shepherd boy named David shows up. He's bringing supplies to his brothers who were on the front line of battle. While he's there, he hears this giant show up and start taunting the army. And he sees all these veteran fighters running for cover, running away from this guy. And so he makes his way over to King Saul, king of Israel, and he goes, hey, listen, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. Again, right? Now, this awesome conversation takes place. We don't have time to read it today. But effectively, he convinces King Saul to go let him fight. Now, David makes his way into the middle of that valley, and he says to Goliath, he goes, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head And then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That is entheosousia. That is spiritual enthusiasm. Okay? This is not human confidence. This is raw, unbridled, unadulterated, pure spiritual enthusiasm. The question is, where did it come from? How did it... How did David get this kind of enthusiasm for the Lord? I'm going to argue he did three things that contributed to this kind of spiritual enthusiasm. He trusted God daily, he walked with God daily, and he worshiped God daily. I would argue these three practices done daily contributed to David's tremendous spiritual enthusiasm, that that passion, that zeal, to use an Old Testament word, that fire that he had for God. So let's break these down real fast. The first thing we see David doing is he trusted God daily. How did David have the faith to battle a giant? See, that kind of faith doesn't happen overnight, all right? It happens from trusting God daily with your battle. Scripture says that when we trust God with the small things, it'll embolden us to trust him with the big things. And so when King Saul asked David, he goes, why do you think you can do this? Why do you have such confidence? I mean, these veteran like of war, the, these guys are running for cover. Why do you think you can do this? David enthusiastically answered, and if you were here last week, you know the answer because it's my life verse. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And so David is not phased at all by Goliath. Why? Because he's been trusting God for years. He's like, look, listen, God's done it once. He'll do it again. I, right? he, I, 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 based on God's past performance, I know he'll be faithful. He will give me victory over Goliath, just like he gave me victory over that lion, and just like he gave me victory over that bear. David trusted God in the past, and he knew I could trust him now. Second, David walked with God daily. So this term walked, if my being honest with you, I don't love it. It's a very kind of Christianese, churchy word, and it's a little ambiguous, but the best way that I could define what it means to walk with God 
is it means to live for him. It means to move in harmony with God, to stay close to him in your life, to seek his will in everything you do, to desire to just be in his presence, to walk with God. It's why David could write something like Psalm 23 when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. You've heard this. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. What I love about this is that it wasn't necessarily the green pastures that refreshed David's soul. And it wasn't the quiet waters that refreshed David's soul. It was God who refreshed his soul. David understood that walking with God, living with God, being in God's presence daily refreshed his soul. And walking with God daily helped him realize that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Even though I stand in the valley of Elah in this battlefield with no sword and no armor, looking at a giant who could destroy me, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These words of faith are a direct result of spiritual intimacy, of someone who is walking with God, fellowshipping with God daily. So David trusted God daily. He walked with God daily. And last, I would say he worshiped God daily. At one point in the scriptures, the Ark of the Covenant, and Reader's Digest, let's just call it a box with God's presence in it. I mean, it's way more than that, but for today's purposes, a box with God's presence in it. This Ark of the Covenant gets carried into town, and when David sees it coming, it says he danced before the Lord with all his might. Other translations say he danced with abandon, meaning he couldn't even contain his enthusiasm for God. He danced like nobody was watching, except his wife was watching, and it says she was embarrassed and mad at him, and that's a different sermon for a different day. He danced with all of his strength and might. He danced with abandon because he was just so spiritually moved to be in the presence of God. And let me tell you this, that kind of enthusiasm was not born out of watching church online from his couch. Wait, nor was it born from driving across town to sit in the church once a Sunday to hear a sermon. This kind of enthusiasm was the product of worshiping God daily. And because of these three practices, David had tremendous spiritual enthusiasm for the Lord. And so, as Goliath, it says, moved closer to attack, look what he did. He quickly ran out to meet him. No hesitation whatsoever. He reaches into his bag, he pulls out a stone, he famously uses a slingshot, hurls this stone at Goliath, Scripture says that it sinks into his head. It doesn't just bounce off. It sinks into his skull, and it kills him. He then lops off his head. Now, this happened during a season of David's life when he was filled to the brim with spiritual enthusiasm. Now I want to fast forward to when David is older. He's about 35 years old at this point. He's finally the king of Israel. God told him he would be king when he was about 15 years old, he's now finally the king of Israel. And life is comfortable. We read this in 2 Samuel. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, let's pause for a second. So who is David right now? He's the king. And where is he supposed to be? At war. He's in the spring. 
at the time when kings go off to war. Instead, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, which means David wasn't where David was supposed to be. He's supposed to be at battle, right? Instead, he's at home. Verse two. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Uh-oh. Okay, now, if you know this story, many of you probably do, you know that this is the beginning of one of the most tragic and disturbing stories in all of Scripture. David is up on that roof watching her bathe, naked by the way. I would argue this is not the first time. And his lust finally takes over. And so he sends one of his assistants to go grab this woman, brings her back to the palace. He sleeps with her. Turns out she's married. David ends up getting her pregnant. And then to cover up this whole mess, he has her husband killed. It's a mess. And it all started when David wasn't where David was supposed to be. So let's connect the dots in these two seasons of his life. As a young shepherd boy, with enthusiasm, David ran into battle to serve God. He was actively trusting God. He was actively walking with God. And because of that, he saw God's activity in his life and it filled him with spiritual enthusiasm and he ran into battle to serve God. Then, later as a king, with apathy, David walked on the roof to serve himself. How did David lose his enthusiasm? I would argue he took his eyes off his calling and put them on his comfort. Scripture says that God anointed him as a teenager, called him to be the king of his people, the Israelites. He was supposed to be serving God, but instead he was serving himself. Now here's the uncomfortable question I have for every single one of you. And please be honest with yourself. This is why we are here. Be honest with yourself. Which season of David's life best represents you? Are you like David as a young shepherd boy and you are spiritually enthusiastic? Are you on fire for the things of God? Do you work for the Lord in everything you do? Are you trusting him? Are you walking with him? Are you worshiping him? Are you praying big prayers? Are you believing that he's at work in this world and in your life? Are you witnessing to other people about your faith? Are you reading scripture? Are you serving? Are you spiritually enthusiastic, on fire for God? Or are you like David as the king? Are you spiritually comfortable? Where life is more about you, right? I want what I want. I want to be comfortable. I know I should be serving, but I'd rather be up on the roof. I know I should be giving, but somebody else would do that. I know I should be worshiping God, but, you know, It's a great beach day. It's a great day to take the boat out. I mean, the dolphins are on at one. I drank too much last night. Like I know, I know I should be praying for other people, but life is just so busy right now. Are you full of entheos? Are you full of God? Or are you full of yourself? I would argue that it's human nature to drift from God. Generally speaking, humans do not drift towards discipline. We don't generally drift towards healthy choices. We don't generally drift towards wise decisions. Because of our sin nature, 
we tend to drift towards complacency, apathy, towards self-centered attitudes, right? And if we are not careful, we can drift away from God. Now, Jesus himself was speaking to a group of Christians, and he said this, but I have this complaint against you. (laughs) It's never what you want to hear Jesus say. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You lost that love and feeling. Some of you are like this, aren't you? There was a time in your life when you were enthusiastic about God. And now you're not so much anymore. It's just, eh. You know, like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Absolutely, I'm a Christian. But yeah, I kind of do my own thing on Sundays now. And like, I kind of, I, I pray occasionally, I guess you could say. But yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus would say, well, look how far you've fallen. Now, I don't see this as a judgment. I actually see this as an invitation to examine your relationship with God. He's like, look how far you've fallen. Come on, I want you to open your eyes and take a good look at your faith. He would say, I remember when you gave your heart to me. I remember when you prayed for the first time and you meant it. I remember that. I remember when you got baptized. I remember when you would open up scripture and devour it. I remember when you first trusted me with the tithe. I remember when you served other people, but look how far you've fallen. How does a kid who attacks a giant end up as an adult who hides from battle? I would argue that he stopped focusing enthusiastically on his calling and he settled for living for his own comfort. He detached himself from the source of enthusiasm, God. He detached himself from his rock. He detached himself from the vine. Jesus himself says this, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will be filled with passion. You will be filled with enthusiasm. You will love me. You will love others. You will change this world. You will charge into battle. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And many of you know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. When we drift from God, when we pull away from the vine, as Jesus would say, what happens? We wither away. We start slipping up, don't we? Those old habits they start to resurface. You start to kind of turn back into the old me. You find that you're more stressed. You find that you're more depressed. You you're find that you're irritated and, and, and angry. Now, you may not have walked away from battle, but you detached yourself from the source, and Jesus would say, look, how far you've fallen. What do you do when you've lost your spiritual enthusiasm? Maybe you're here today and you would say, I have drifted. I mean, there was a a time when I was on fire for God, and now I don't know. I don't know. You're right. You're right. You're right. What do you do? Jesus actually made it very clear what you do. He told that group of Christians, he said this, here's what I want you to do. Repent, 
and do the things you did at first. Very easy. Now, when we hear this word repent, a lot of us kind of in our minds picture some sweaty preacher yelling over a podium, repent, like that, right? Get all nervous. and That's really not what repent means. In the Greek, when this word was written, the word they used was metanoia. That's the word. Metanoia means change the way you think. It means cha change the direction you're going into. So Jesus would say, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. You were walking away from me. Come on, you know that. You were walking away from me. Now I want you to metanoia. I want you to change your direction. I want you to walk back to me. And then I want you to do what you did at first. In other words, I want you to repent and hit the reset. God, I recognize that for one reason or another, I've taken my eyes off you. You have not been my priority. I have put something else in the center of my life. Maybe it's, maybe it's work, right? And we got all kinds of excuses as to why it can be work. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's partying. But, but Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. And because God is faithful to forgive, Scripture says, you can say amen and know that you are forgiven. But you ain't done yet. Now you got to hit the reset, as Jesus would say. And you have to do what you did at first. And what did you used to do? You trust God. You walk with God. You worship God daily. It's got to be daily. David realized how far he had fallen. He realized how far he had drifted. He realized that he had detached himself from the source of his joy and he prayed a powerful prayer that he wrote down for us. He wrote it immediately after this whole debacle takes place. And I want to read you a part of this prayer because the words that he prays may be the exact words that you need to pray. In a prayer, David said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And then he says something profound. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. God forgave David. David would go on to be called a man after God's own heart. He would write over 70 Psalms and God would bless him with a son named Solomon who scripture says is the wisest man who ever lived. David got his enthusiasm back. What do you do when you lost what you had? You repent, you get renewed, you get restored, and then you get back to doing what you did before. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it is your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So when I was in college up in North Carolina, a long time ago now, <clears throat> my pastor at the time, was a guy named Dr. Gary Chapman. Many of you might know him. He wrote the five love languages. Um, he was an associate pastor there, but he became the interim pastor. So for all four years, I got to hear this guy preach every Sunday, and it was incredible. It was phenomenal. One time he told a joke, and I'll never forget it. He says, you know, there was this elderly couple, and they were driving an old pickup truck with a bench seat. You know the kind. And they pull up to a traffic light, and wouldn't you know it, ahead of them 
was a young couple driving the exact same pickup truck. Well, the wife is looking at this younger couple, and she sees that the girl is all snuggled up against the driver. And she looks at her husband, and she says, you know, we used to be that close. And he looks back at her, and he says, well, I haven't moved. Some of you here today need to rediscover your relationship with God. Because somewhere along life's highway, and I don't know when it happened, and maybe you don't either, but, but some of you moved away from the guy in the driver's seat. You allowed that joy to dwindle. You allowed that spark to die out. Now, here's the thing. It happens. Jesus is aware that it happens, as you saw. You are a human being. However, let's just make sure that we don't stray too far for too long from our first love, Jesus Christ. And so if you are here today and you would say, you know what, my spark has gone out, Jesus would simply say, do what you used to do. Get back to the basics. Get back into God's word. Get back to prayer. Get back to worshiping God. If you used to volunteer and you were somebody that would live to serve, but now you just kind of live to be served, he would say, get back to helping other people. Not out of some legalistic duty to God. Rather, out of delight. Now, others of you might be here today, and you hear me talking about spiritual enthusiasm, but when you kind of look at your life, you realize that something's missing. Like you look around this room, or you think about Betty Joe, I was talking about in the beginning, and you recognize that those folks seem to have something that you don't. Like there's this joy, there's something special, and you're wondering what it is that they have that you seem to be missing. Well, I can tell you exactly what it is. Get your pen and paper out. Here's what they have. Eternal peace. It's exactly what David prayed to be reminded about. Give me the joy of your salvation. It's this inner joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. It's this inner joy to know that you have been made new, that you have been made right with the creator of the universe. It's this inner joy of knowing that your heavenly father is with you and loves you and is for you. And if there is something inside of you that wants that, that is God's spirit calling you. And so I would challenge you to say yes. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and in an instant, through no work of your own, you can be forgiven forever. You can be handed a new life in Christ, and you, like countless others before you, can rejoice in that salvation. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you've preserved the account of David's life, God. Because it's like, a, it's like looking into a mirror for some of us. Those of us, Lord, who, who have asked to, to be your child, that you would save us. We, there was a time in our life when we were on fire for you. That we would pray and, and tears would stream down our face thinking about how good you are and what you've done for us, but then life gets in the way. And somehow... We got used to you. 
we got used to the idea of salvation and and we lost that passion. But Lord, you're calling us back. You're asking us to change the way that we think and change the direction that we're moving. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would light a fire inside of us, Lord, perhaps like we have never felt before. That we would passionately begin praying and worshiping and trusting you and getting out into our community and telling folks about who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you can do in theirs. And Lord, if there is someone in this room today or watching online who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today something might change. That they, in their own personal way, might say, Jesus, I don't, I, I don't, even, underst- I don't even understand it all. But there's something inside of me that I, I know is missing. And I think it's you. And Lord, if you are who you claim to be, God, I just invite you into my life to be my Lord. And I pray, Lord, that today would be a mile marker in their life to know that they have been forgiven and you are for them and you from this day forward are working everything together in their life for their good. God, we thank you for who you are and everything that you've done for us. And those of us, Lord, who are Christians, we rejoice in our salvation. And we thank you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name.